All right. I'm excited about this morning. It's been two weeks since we've been in our Exodus survey. Last week was, of course, Easter, and so what better way to follow up a message about Resurrection Sunday than to talk about the Egyptian plagues, right? Makes perfect sense. Actually, the funny thing is, uh, months ago when we worked out that we were going to do Exodus, we kind of laid out the, the, the sermons week to week, and we kind of forgot to account for Easter, and so actually the message about the plagues originally was going to be on Easter. And when I looked at that, I was like, what in the world am I going to do <laughs> with the plagues on Easter Sunday? All right. What we're going to see in today's passage is God's power and His sovereignty. And sovereignty just means supreme power and authority over everything. And everything really means everything. And so because of that, when you're dealing with sovereignty, you can run into some uncomfortable issues that we have to wrestle with. We find these uncomfortable issues because the Lord is revealing to us who He really is, not always who we wish He was or how we want Him to be, but how He really is. Every once in a while, we teach a message that will leave you wrestling with some questions. I think you guys have heard us say before that we as pastors share our notes with one another. I made sure that I shared my notes early this week so that all the pastors could have a look at it and we could communicate these things to you as clearly as possible. But at the end of today's sermon, if you still have questions, we would love to talk to you. Please do not hesitate to reach out. This, is, this could potentially be a tough one, so uh, don't be afraid to ask. We'd love to talk. The title of today's message is, God Reveals His Power. And here's how we're going to do this. This is a big section. So I want you to imagine walking up to a big department store, and there's a lot of stuff in that store, but in the front are windows, and in the windows are displays of things that are available inside the store. There's tons of stuff in there, but what we're going to be doing is looking in three windows to get a little idea of some of the, the more prominent things that are in this passage. So, let's pray, and then we'll jump in, all right? Father God, I need Your help. And so, Lord, my simple yet uh, profound prayer that I'm asking You this morning, because it would be a miracle, is, Lord, that You would give me Your words to speak, that they would not be my words, but Your words, and that Your words would abide in our hearts and bear fruit to Your glory, that Your name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Lord, we ask that You would do this miracle this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, the great news is over the past couple of weeks and months, we seem to have new people visiting uh, every week and people joining online. So, what I want to start with is just reorienting us to where we are in the book of Exodus, because I don't want to assume that everybody knows where we are. So, what we've done so far in Exodus is we've learned that the descendants of Jacob, their account is in the book of Genesis, the descendants of Jacob have now grown in 
size. They are a very numerous population, and they're in Egypt. And they've grown so large that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is starting to get a little concerned. And so he tries to control them in two primary ways. One is he actually kills the male children of the Israelites, which is horribly tragic, and he also enslaves the people of Israel. He, he, uh, they are in forced labor. And it's into this really difficult situation that Moses is born. And the Lord, I think because he's got an incredible sense of humor and also wants to reveal his power, sees fit to have Moses not only survive, not be killed, but to be raised in the Pharaoh's house. So Moses is raised as one of the Pharaoh's family, and when he's 40 years old, he commits murder. He commits murder because he's protecting one of his uh, fellow Israelite brothers. And as a result, he is exiled from Egypt. He has to flee the Pharaoh's wrath, and he ends up in the land of Midian, where he becomes a shepherd, he gets married, he has children, and he exists in that life for another 40 years. And while those 40 years are passing, the people of Israel are still suffering, and they're still uh, under the thumb of Pharaoh and all this forced labor and enslavement. But Exodus chapter 2, at the very end, says this very encouraging thing. It says, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is the hero of this story. And so when we go on with the account, we see that God calls to Moses in the burning bush. He gives him a mission to return to Egypt to facilitate the rescue of the Israelite people. He gives him signs to perform for the people and for Pharaoh. He sends him back where he meets Aaron, and Moses and Aaron go to the Israelites to reveal to them for the first time that the Lord has remembered them and is going to rescue them out of Egypt. And chapter 4, this is where Joe finished up last time, chapter 4 ends like this. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So now we're going to pick up from that point, but today's passage, I'm not even kidding you, is six chapters long. Zach Collins, my friend Zach Collins said, you know, you probably don't even have to write a sermon. You could just read from chapter 5 through chapter 10, and by the time you're done, we'll be time to go home. We're not going to do that. It's six chapters, so obviously we can't cover every single thing, which is why we're going to look into these little windows, which we'll start doing in a moment. But here's generally what happens over chapters 5 through chapter 10. Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh for the very first time. And they communicate to him what the Lord is demanding of him. And you're probably all familiar with the story. Pharaoh does not respond well. He becomes angry. 
he increases the workload of the Israelites in his anger. The Israelites start to then not respond so favorably to what Moses and Aaron had told them previously, and the Scriptures actually say it's because their spirits were broken and they were subject to harsh slavery. And so, over and over again, Moses and Aaron communicate to Pharaoh, and over and over again, Pharaoh refuses the Lord's demands. Now, we're going to get into some of the specifics of that account as we go through, but let's look at our first window. Remember, we're thinking about this big storefront. Like, I always, my wife and I lived in Pittsburgh for years, and I remember going to see the Kaufman's windows at Christmas time, right? It's like that. So, let's look up, look into our first window. And our first window is called Moses is a type of Jesus. Moses is a type of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he's a Messiah. He's not. There's only one Messiah. There's only one Savior of the, the world. That's Jesus Christ. So what does it mean when it says he's a type? Well, this is what it means. It means that we're going to see throughout the account of Exodus evidence in Moses' life of what the coming Messiah is going to be like and what he's going to do. Remember, the title of today's message is God Reveals His Power. We're talking about God's power. And so we're going to see these little shadows in Moses of what is going to be God's greatest act of power in history, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God saw fit thousands of years before Jesus was incarnated, God saw fit to kind of give us hints about the big reveal that was coming. Now, there's, there's an author named A.W. Pink, and he wrote a book in which he detailed, and there are probably more than this even, but he detailed 75 parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. So, if we were talking about either one of these guys… I could, say, I could say this and be talking about either one of them. I could say he was a Hebrew. I could say he was born at a time when his people were under the rule of a hostile authority. I could say that he was endangered during his infancy. There were people who were trying to kill him. He spent his childhood in Egypt. He had a deep compassion for the suffering of his people Israel. He laid down a royal life to suffer with his people, and still, in many ways, he was rejected by his people. And that's just a few. And when you get into these lists of similarities, they range from like the epic, like amazing things, to things that would just seem like trivial, but the Lord saw fit to draw these comparisons, and we could see all these cool things. Now, as we're looking in our first window in this passage from Exodus 5 to Exodus 10, there's one commonality between these two men that really stick out. And that's this, that neither one of them ever did anything other than what the Father told him to do or showed him to do. They only did what the Father told him or showed him to do. Jesus actually said this about himself a couple of times, um, specifically in the Gospel of John. So check this out. In John 5, verse 19, Jesus says this, truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, 
the Son does likewise. That is pretty clear. But he makes it even clearer. He says this in John chapter 8, verse 28. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's referring to his crucifixion. When you have crucified me, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus did what his Father told him to do. And probably the most extreme example of this in my mind is, well, it's obviously the cross, but if you think about what happened the night before the cross, where was Jesus? He was in a garden praying to his Father, and he knew what was coming the next day. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he prayed, knowing how he would suffer the next day, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So even in the face of cruel, undeserved punishment, he was willing to do only what the Father required of him. So how does Moses compare to that? Well, not favorably. <laughs> Remember, Moses is a type of Jesus, but he's not like Jesus. In fact, compare is not even the right word. We can't, we can't say that they were like one another. They had similarities, but Jesus was the Messiah. Moses was not. In fact, Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The writer says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. In other words, think about Him. Meditate on what He was like. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses was faithful. He was faithful like Jesus. But Moses was faithful over God's house. Jesus built God's house. Jesus built God's house. So while we see similarities, there's really no comparison between the two. When we read through the account in Exodus from 5 to 10, we, you would find 19 examples of the Lord telling Moses what to do and then Moses doing it. But remember, the hero of this story is God. And so sometimes it's really interesting as you're reading through these things and you're getting these shadows of what Jesus, our Messiah, is going to be like. Sometimes God leaves Moses entirely out of the story. Like he tells Moses what to do. I think it's like three or four occasions. He tells Moses what to do. And then it's kind of implied that Moses does it, but it doesn't actually say in the text that Moses did anything. It just says God accomplished all that he said he would do. 
There are lots of times when you see Moses actually repeating word for word what the Lord told him to do, but it's clear that God is the hero of this story. God accomplished it. Moses points to Jesus as a type, but he is an imperfect type, an imperfect type. Jesus is perfect. Amen? He's the hero. If God is the hero, Jesus is the hero because Jesus is God. So, in Jesus, we see God's power revealed in the most epic way in all of scriptures. And in Moses, we see a type of that foreshadowing what's coming. Let's look in the next window. And if we're outside this storefront, this next window is the biggest window. It's the one that has all the stuff in it that this store wants to be known for. Like if you want to come to this store and, and see what they specialize in, you're going to look in this big window. This is the big point of today's message, and it's this. The window is called, there is no other God but Yahweh. There is no other God but Yahweh. Yahweh is a word that we don't use very often, but it is the name that God gives himself when he's talking to Moses uh, in chapter 3 or chapter 4, when he reveals himself in the burning bush and Moses asks his name, he says Yahweh. We, in our Bibles, most of our Bibles would have that word translated as Lord or in all capital letters, Lord. And in our practical use of, of God's name, when we're talking about him, we today most of the time refer to him as the Lord or God. But Moses, in this account throughout Exodus, and it's interesting if you read through and try to substitute this in because it makes it very different in our reading. Moses would have been using the word Yahweh because that's what the Lord told him to say. In fact, there's this really cool uh, example of this at the beginning of chapter 5, and it makes much more conversational sense. Um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh for the first time and deliver the Lord's demands. And then in Exodus 5, 2, can we have that up there? Um, check this out. This is the way it looks in our Bibles, but imagine if you substitute Yahweh in there. Can you just hear Pharaoh after hearing this from Moses and Aaron saying, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And it makes even more sense when you remember that the Egyptians were what is called polytheists. Do you know what that means? It means that they served and worshipped many gods. And all of their gods had individual names and characteristics and things that they were kind of believed to be responsible for. And so they would not have had a place in their mind for calling one of those gods Lord, like as in Lord over all, because they didn't serve gods who they thought were over any others. They just served all of these gods equally. And so they would have thought Yahweh was just one in a group of many. Now, that's kind of the setup for what the Lord is about to do, because He's going to do something that reveals His power in incredibly epic ways, and it's for a very specific purpose. In fact, there's a verse in Exodus that is kind of like the topic sentence, not only of this sermon or this passage, but it's probably the topic sentence of the entire book of Exodus or even the entire Bible. 
all right? The Lord for sure is intending to save his people Israel. He is absolutely remembering his covenant with them and intends to rescue them. But the topic sentence purpose of the Lord in all of history is this. Exodus 9:16 says, "But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth." That is what the Lord is doing in everything that he does. He actually says that that verse, that is the Lord speaking to Pharaoh right before the seventh plague. And that is God's purpose, to show us who he is, who he really is, not who we sometimes wish he would be like. You know, we kind of wish maybe he was kind of like this instead of like this, and it kind of makes us uncomfortable at times. But he wants to show us exactly who he really is because he loves us and wants us to know him. In fact, he sets this up really when he introduces himself to Moses. He said, Moses asked him his name, and what did he say? I am who I am. I am who I am. The Lord is not going to make apologies for who he is. He's just going to show us what he's like. Now, for the Israelites, what does that mean? That means that they're about to see that the Lord sees their suffering and remembers his covenant with them and is going to rescue them. For the Egyptians, it means that the Lord is going to demonstrate to them that he is more powerful than anything that they could possibly worship. And so the plagues begin. <clears throat> now, did you ever wonder why the Lord chose the plagues that he did? Ten plagues. I mean, if I were doing it, I would have chosen different plagues, right? Like I would have chosen six more weeks of winter, you know? I would have chosen an increase in the price of lumber, I would have chosen coffee with no caffeine. You know what I mean? Like these are the things that would get me. But he chose different things. And it was because he was directly addressing things that the Egyptians worshipped that were not him. Okay? Now there are 10 of these plagues and we could take a lot of time with this. So I'm just going to like fly over it. Remember the first plague was the turning of the water of the Nile into blood. Well, that was a direct assault on a god named Hapi, who was considered to be the spirit of the Nile. The plague of frogs was directed at a god called Heket, who was symbolized in Egyptian sculpture as a god who had a body of a human and a head of a frog. And so God sends a plague of frogs. The third plague, which this one would have been hard, it was a plague of gnats, and some of your translations will say lice. And in this one, Aaron took the staff and he struck the dust of the earth, and the scripture says the dust became gnats or lice. Now, I've not been to Egypt, but I've seen the pictures, and there's a lot of dust there. All right? Can you imagine the lice everywhere? Well, that was a direct assault on a god named Seb, who was the god of the earth. The fourth plague was flies. There was an Egyptian god of flies. The fifth plague was the death of livestock. There were numerous Egyptian gods depicted with the heads of bulls or cows. The uh, sixth plague was boils on their skin. Well, there was a 
an Egyptian god named Imhotep who was supposed to be the god of healing. And these boils could not be healed until the Lord relented. The seventh plague, this one I think is, I mean, all of this is sad, but it's just kind of amazing and a little funny to think they had a god named Shu who was the god of weather the God of the atmosphere, weather, and the sky. And in the seventh plague, God sent hail, blocks of ice, and fire from the sky simultaneously. Talk about demonstrating the power over the weather. The eighth plague was locusts. There was an Egyptian God who was specifically supposed to protect them from the invasion of locusts, and yet the locusts came. The ninth plague was darkness, that was addressing numerous Egyptian gods who were associated with the sun. And the tenth plague was, of course, the death of the firstborn. And that was addressed directly at Pharaoh himself. Because in Egypt, the Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. He would have counted himself as a god, equal to Yahweh, he thought. And so here comes Yahweh and directly assaults that presumption. Our God, Yahweh, is powerful. And when we think of these things, these plagues, it's, there's, there's sadness in this when you think about what actually happened to these real people in a real time. But our God, Yahweh, is good, He is faithful, He is kind, and He is just and jealous. Notice I didn't say, but he was just and jealous. He is good and faithful and kind, and he is just and jealous. That is the way that he is. We heard Kay talk about this this morning when he presented communion. Our greatest enemy was God himself. We were under the wrath of God had he not saved us. And because he is good and faithful and kind, he shows us himself exactly as he is. He is demonstrating in the plagues his supremacy, because it's true, over all the Egyptian gods and any other god we could name for that matter. Because, why? What's his purpose? To show my power, he says, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that's the second window, the biggest window. We're going to look at the third window. And so far, we've looked at Moses being a type of Jesus. We've looked at God revealing himself in power over every other God. And I told you at the beginning of this message that there are some things we could deal with today that could be kind of uncomfortable. And you may be thinking, when are we getting to the uncomfortable stuff? Well, let's look at the third window. And imagine that you go to the third window and it's a little bit cloudy and hard to see in. And you're kind of like rubbing the glass and looking in. Because this is one of those things in Scripture that is true. It represents God showing us who He is and what He's like. But it's also one of those things in Scripture that is just so hard sometimes for our human brains in their limited capacity to fully grasp. And that's this. This is the third window. God is sovereign over every human heart. God is sovereign over every human heart. I prayed a lot about presenting this window to you today. That statement 
is redundant. It's redundant because if God is sovereign, which means that He has absolute power over everything, well, the human heart is a thing. So it goes without saying that He's sovereign over every human heart because if He's sovereign, He's over everything. But when we get into issues that talk about God's sovereignty and the issues of of the human heart, we can kind of start feeling uncomfortable because it can seem to us to be unfair. Human beings have this desire for fairness. That's probably not a universal truth, but many of us have a desire for fairness. If you've spent any time around children, you know that fairness is an issue, which actually is an unfair thing to say because adults are exactly the same way. We struggle with things being fair by our definition. And when we look through Exodus 5 through 10, which I would encourage you to read if you haven't yet, the elephant in the room in this passage is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The Lord speaks to Moses, tells Moses what he wants him to say, Moses goes to Pharaoh with Aaron, tells Pharaoh what the Lord requires, and then Pharaoh's heart is hardened over and over again. And the result is agricultural destruction, economic ruin, pain and suffering, the loss of lives, the destruction of the Egyptian army, Possibly, we don't actually know from Scripture if this happened or not, but possibly the death of Pharaoh himself, and definitely the death of the firstborn in every Egyptian household. That is sad, and all because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What does that even mean, first of all? Got to make sure we're all on the same page as to what that means. We know in the year 2021, that our thought center is our brain. That's where our thought comes from. That's, where, that's what controls our, our body functions. But <clears throat> in the time that this was written, they would not have known that. So there's no, you're not going to read about the brain in the Old Testament. Instead, you're going to read about the human heart. We know that the heart is just a muscle pumping blood through our bodies, but they would have considered the heart to be the entirety of a person's intellect, their emotions, and their will that caused them to behave the way that they behaved. We can kind of think of it more in, in modern terms, what we would say is our mind, but it's, it's more than that. It's kind of like all that we are, our whole being. All right? That's what we're talking about when we read about the heart being hardened or the heart being softened. In this passage, there are 19 references to Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And this is where it can get tricky and uncomfortable, but it's just the reality, so we got to deal with it. Check this out. In 19 times, three of those times, the Lord specifically says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord is the actor. Six of those times, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that's nine times already 
that the Lord is specifically the actor in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Seven more times, it kind of vaguely refers to the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it doesn't attribute that responsibility to one or the other, but the wording is such that it kind of seems like it comes from an outside uh, perspective. And only three times of those 19 does it actually specifically say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart out of 19. So where's the responsibility? I think it's pretty obvious, even if it's something we wrestle with, it's pretty obvious that God is the one in control. He's driving this bus, all right? Now, in the ESV study Bible, one commentator says this, which I found, if not to be helpful, at least to get my brain working and thinking about this. He says this, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is referred to through chapter 4 through 14 with the implication that Pharaoh is responsible for his own actions. However, the Lord states that it is his sovereign hand that ultimately governs the events. Though one might conclude that if God hardens someone's heart, the latter is not answerable for his actions, that is not the biblical view. And certainly, here the narrative is careful to point out that the Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. The sinner remains responsible for his sin. God is in control, yet the sinner remains responsible for his sin. That can be a daunting, perplexing, and difficult reality. That's the elephant in the room that we got to deal with. And if you're wrestling with that, which I don't blame you if you are, if you're wrestling with that, perhaps this will be helpful. Here are some truths from Scripture that are very clear and easy to latch on to in the face of this thing that we're wrestling with. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. None of us deserve the mercy that the Lord has shown us. None of us deserve the salvation that was purchased in the blood of Jesus. If, this isn't the case, this is a hypothetical, but if from the beginning of time all the way until the Lord returns, if the total number of people in all of history who he saved was one, and the population of heaven for all of eternity was one, it would still be true that God is good and merciful and kind because that one sinner would not have deserved his mercy. And yet he saved billions. This is also true, and this was another one that's like, it's a big one. It's hard for us to like grasp, but it's true. Romans 8, starting in verse 28, says, and we know that of those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you sit here this morning or join us at home 
and you are saved by the grace of Jesus, He chose you before the foundations of the world. Is that a mystery? Yes, that is totally a mystery. But it's a true reality that we only see a small part of, okay? And when we encounter things in Scripture like this, these big true realities that we only see a small part of, that in itself is an example of God's power. It shows us how much greater He is than we are. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something a little silly just to kind of, hopefully this will stick in your memory, but do you know what a spyglass is? You know, like pirates look through a spyglass? I want you to make your fist into a spyglass and look through it, all right? I promise I'm not doing this just to make you look silly, although you do, all right? But here's the catch. I want you to look through the spyglass, close one of your eyes, look through the spyglass, except I want you to make the hole in your fist as tiny as you can so it's just a pinhole. Now, are you having trouble kind of seeing the whole picture, right? Do you think, okay, you can put your hands <laughs> Um do you think if that's the way you saw things all the time, you would have a real strong grasp on what the reality of, of things were around you? Probably not. But in a lot of ways, that's how we see a lot of the times. The Lord sees everything. We're seeing what He allows us to see through this little pinhole. And when we encounter scriptures like We've been chosen in Him before the foundations of the world. Like, that's, that's one of those pinhole things that can leave us with a lot of questions. You see, the sovereignty of God over every human heart and the responsibility of man for his sins is likely going to be one of these things that remains a mystery to us until we are glorified and perfected like Jesus and we finally get it. But while we're waiting for that to happen, these two scriptures are still true. We can't look in the Bible and find a scripture that says, well, if this one's true, then this one can't be. They have to both be true. So it is true what Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is true. It is also true, Romans 10, 12, and 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is true. He chose us before the foundation of the world. All who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Two completely true statements. So what do we do with that? How do we respond? Donna's laughing in the front row. I love it. How do we, what do we do with that? Should we think, well, nothing matters then. The Lord's going to save who he saves. I don't have to do, I don't have to tell anybody about Jesus because it's all going to just happen the way the Lord plans for it to anyway. Well, to quote Paul, may it never be. May you never have that reaction. <laughs> because as the Lord is revealing His power to us, the way we should respond is in humility 
to follow his instructions, to do what he has told us to do, even if we don't grasp the full reality. The Lord said this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What I hear in that is, there are going to be things that I don't understand because they belong to the Lord, but what He gives us, what He has revealed to us about Himself, let's run with it. Let's do what He's shown us to do. So let's pray for the unsaved. Let's pray that they would see the truth of the Scriptures. Let's pray that their eyes would be opened. Let's preach the gospel. Let's tell people of the good news of Jesus. Let's say to them, today is the day of salvation. Let's say to them, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because those are true things that the Lord has revealed to us that we can throw our whole selves into. In other words, we should do what Israel did when Moses and Aaron first presented to them the reality that the Lord was coming to rescue them. This wasn't even in our passage today. It was in chapter 2. But do you remember what it was? The Israelites heard what the Lord was going to do. They saw His power displayed in the signs that Moses and Aaron showed them. And it says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. When they saw the Lord's power, they were humbled and their response was worship. Now, I don't expect that the things that we talked about today with this <clears throat> are just going to like clear everything up for everybody, you know? There, you're probably still going to wrestle with these things because of like the fairness issue. But I want to just leave you with one last thing. If, if the fairness issue is something that is still a struggle, and it's okay if it is, like embrace the struggle. Go to the Lord, go to the Scriptures, go to Him in prayer, and ask Him for His help. But if that fairness issue is something you struggle with, I want to remind you that we worship the Lord. If you worship the Lord, you worship the Lord because of something that was so vastly more unfair than what we see in Exodus 5 through 10. There's one thing in the Bible that is the most unfair thing in history, and that's the cross of Christ. It was totally unfair. Totally unfair. Because no matter what we think about what happened to Pharaoh, like it can seem, man, the Lord wanted to show His power. He wanted to reveal who He was. He wanted His name to be proclaimed in all the earth, and it was at Pharaoh's expense. As much as that's hard, we got to remember that Pharaoh was a sinner, lost in his sins, dead in his trespasses and sins, completely separated from God. But Jesus, the Messiah, was fully man and is fully man and fully God, completely innocent, and he suffered brutally and died on a cross for crimes he never committed and that we did. He came and suffered on that cross for us who were basically a bunch of pharaohs. That's incredibly unfair. 
But that, that revelation right there of God's power is why we are humbled and respond in worship. Amen? So the band can come up. We're going we're gonna to sing to the Lord because He's worthy of our praises. Um, and as they're coming up, I just want to say this to kind of wrap it all up. The topic sentence of this passage, if you remember one thing about this sermon, besides looking through your spyglass, um, if you remember one thing, it should be Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. It's the topic sentence of perhaps the entire Bible. And it's this, the Lord says that His, his purpose was so that His name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord brings us to a place of worship of Him when we get a glimpse of just how awesome and powerful and sovereign He is. So my prayer for you as you consider these things, even if you're struggling, is that you will see the power of the God we worship and you'll respond in worship with all that you have. Amen? Stand up, let's pray, and then we are going to sing to the Lord.